And so I learned, while researching this book, that William McKinley was a master manipulator, a man of many secrets, whose placid surface masked imperialist ambitions that would shame a Caesar or an Alexander the Great. The dry recitation of slightly inflated positive economic indicators were but a distraction from a Napoleonic scheme of world conquest, conceived on a seemingly innocuous porch in Canton, Ohio. In short, the meteoric rise and shocking downfall of William McKinley make him the perfect subject for the first ever direct-to-audiobook presidential biography. Before you beg for the chance to represent me, the author of William McKinley, Heartland Hegemon, I'll answer any questions you may have. Mm, conquerors are a little cliché, darling. Can you sex it up a little? You want me to sex up William McKinley? Well, how hard can it be? That's what Ida McKinley said. Oh, come on, darling. He was a president. He must have had an affair or two. He wouldn't have had the time. When he wasn't governing or drafting legislation, he was attending to Ida, who was prone to depressive spells and epileptic seizures. When she fell ill, he would bring her medicine and read to her. Oh, how heartwarming. Anyway, darling, I think that title overpromises just a bit. Have you any other ideas? Oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe William McKinley, an American life. Sounds riveting. Anyway, thank you for your time. I'll be in touch. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 25, William McKinley. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents the Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. Oh, hey, we're back. Woo! We're back. All right. Uh, again, just so we have our bearings and our listeners have our bearings, uh, let's start with the uh, DB Crisis Actors. As jo I'm Joe here. I'm Paul here. I'm Sandy here. I'm Sylvia here in Chicago. I'm Tommy there. And I'm Patrick in your ears. Mm. Like and the cranberries, I'm in your head. <laughs> <laughs> zombie, zombie. Uh, and today, welcoming back our Americanists. Uh, ladies first. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Dr. Chelsea Denault here. And Mr. James Recray everywhere. <laughs> hey, James. I'm going to hit you with this first question. Um, before McKinley became president, during the presidencies of Cleveland and Harrison, now, 
income was actually declining in the United States. Wages were on, on the decline. Was that decline in an abs like in absolute value? People were making seventy cents an hour in eighteen seventy five and fifty cents an hour in eighteen fifty. Or is that like inflation adjusted? Well, that's an interesting question because I think what you'd see is that actual in incomes were declining. Like in 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 number terms, people were making less than they had been making previously. Um, but if you actually look at purchasing power, it probably didn't change as drastically because remember, this was actually a period of time when deflation was the rule rather than inflation. Hmm. Prices were declining. And so if prices are declining, um, that means that less money can purchase more, you know, than it could previously. So, you know, if if the consumer price index goes from 100 to 90 and your wage goes from a dollar an hour to 90 cents an hour, it's basically a push, right? Certainly there were economic tremors. There had been the panic of 1893. And so, yeah, there were people whose livelihoods were, were disrupted, to be sure, but also the deflation perhaps makes the decline in nominal wages look uh, more devastating than it in actuality was. But in my next question is going to be to both of our Americanists. The book I just read pretty much says that the American labor movement had a crescendo around 1877 and spent in the next 15 years up until about the uh, Homestead strike, in fact, I believe that's the name of the town where Carnegie tried to rip off all of his people and there was a battle. That, uh, the home, that the labor movement went into decline for the next 15 years. It was kind of a blame the victim, but what do you expect? The guy who wrote the book uh, used to be a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So is that true? Did uh, Was there actually a stronger labor movement in the 1870s than there was in the 1890s? I would argue yes. There was a, and, and we've talked about labor unrest in the 70s quite extensively in our last few episodes. Maybe James can provide a little bit more concrete reasons why, because he is the economic history genius. But the labor movement really starts to decline in the 1880s and definitely by the 90s and definitely into the 1900s. But eventually, and we'll get to this point, gets supplanted by actual progressive reform during the Roosevelt years and onward. So it has its ebb and flow. Yes, and, and I would also add that it tends to be, it tends to follow economic cycles that when there are panics or depressions, the labor movement tends to gain in strength. So panic of 1870-whatever high point of the labor movement because everyone's like, oh God, we're all losing our jobs. Quick, let's band together so we don't lose our jobs. Then things get good and everyone's like, I don't care about a union. I can get a job anywhere I want. Wages are going up. Not a big deal. And then, you know, panic of 1893 and people are like, oh God, we're all losing our jobs. We need to band together. And so it tends to be that there's times of labor strength when the economy is in the greatest distress. So I'm going to throw this last question out here, then I'm going to shut up for a while. Now, getting to our president, Mr. Manifest Destiny, our first president, McKinley, the rabid, seething, patriotic fervor characterized the McKinley administration, if not McKin although not McKinley himself, shall we say, was that unrest directed at 
uh, foreign targets like, you know, Spain, at, you know, the treatment of those poor people in Cuba, et cetera, et cetera? I feel like this is often a trend that we see throughout American history, right? Where if there's internal dissatisfaction or unrest or disagreement, it's often easier for the federal level to look to find a common enemy instead of doing the hard work to solve our own internal domestic problems. So I, I will leave it at, at that, right? That, <laughs> that maybe saying that the, the labor unrest and the huge economic inequalities that we see forming in this like kind of post-Civil War era, it's so much easier to be like, don't look at what's behind the curtain over here, all of these dissatisfied millions. Instead, look beyond the shores. That would be my argument or one of my arguments? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't necessarily have a, a good answer. Part of the problem, I think, is is trying to find a basis of comparison, like what period in American history was not full of domestic social unrest to some degree or another to say, okay, well, well, there was no unrest between, you know, I don't know, I can't even think of the year. Well, the, the 1950s were the good old days when everything oh. was perfect and we needed to go back there. <laughs> and don't forget the era of good feelings under James Monroe. <laughs> Wheeling it back to the era we're about to discuss, coming out of a really brutal economic situation coming out of or maybe in coming in like in smack dab in the middle of the era of robber barons and industrialists a lot of unrest much of it turned inward whether it's you you know whether it's the unions and the immigrants to oh yeah let's not forget jim crow in the south and and all of that so there's this surging need apparently in the country theoretically for for someone that could capture the vim the vigor the passion the absolute fury of what america could be and first we get william jennings bryan <laughs> anita's grandfather Checking all the boxes. Let's talk a little bit about WJB, shall we? Or is there anything? Good. Well, my one of my favorite things about teaching about William Jennings Bryan is how, like, just when I'm doing my you know ninth grade U.S. history survey, you know, he's not like a main person, but he comes up like four different times. First, he comes up here in the 1890s, and I'm like, oh yeah, this guy ran for president. He lost. That was a you know big blow to the you know um, civil right movement and the farmers and people who supported that. And then all of a sudden he shows up again in World War One, where all of a sudden he's like the Secretary of State, and it's like, wait, how did this guy get here? How has he not been you know consigned to the dustbin of history? Nope, he reemerged. And then a few years later, he's prosecuting Scope in the Scope Monkey Trial. <laughs> he's like the Henry Clay of nineteenth, yes. early twentieth century, except like isn't always losing like is losing most of the time right but isn't always 
That's sort of and like Henry... Jason movies. Just when you think you've been whacked him to death, he comes Just back when you thought it was safe to go back in the yeah. water. There's Williams Jennings Bryant. Guys, I, I don't want to worry anyone, but I did just look up Williams Jennings Bryant, and he's currently giving a speech about the vaccine. I guess there he's, you go. <laughs> he's come back again. On a cross of retroviruses. So, but but and, the and next un- deep fake. And unlike Henry Clay, who at least had this cool theory of how to run America, at least according to one of our Americanists, um, all you get is this speech. Now, I am a speech teacher, and it is one of the great pieces of American rhetoric, the so-called cross of gold speech. And we're so unfamiliar with people developing reputations on the basis of a speech, huh? Joe, I want to thank you for giving me uh, those birthday wishes. It's Michelle your and I birthday. Are celebrating on mm-hmm. Martha's Vineyard. At the time of this recording, it was Barack Obama's 60th birthday. Yes. Also, President Obama, we know you're listening. Also, I would just like the audience to know uh, William Jennings Bryan kind of looks like Peter Boyle. Yes, Ooh. he does. Yep. And William, William McKinley looks like Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. With, the, with, the, with the eyebrows, very true. Some would say he's just as much of a puppet. Mm. Well, <laughs> well played. We'll get to that. Um, so just, and again, we will probably return to William Jennings Bryan in one of our plotted special episodes on famous American presidential losers because oh. lordy, lordy, are there a lot, of, there's a lot of losing with him. But you, you, Chelsea, you seem to have some of the well, House of Gold speech but, memorized. <laughs> only, only the the iconic line, right? You shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. Yeah. My goodness, Julius, Democrats make such a mess. Oh, I've never seen a man celebrated for a good half hour after a speech, that's for sure. I was downstairs burning confetti. What was all the rest for? Democrats are going to nominate Mr. William Jennings Bryan for president. Who? Our next president. Uh, you ought to vote for him yourself, Horace. Oh, you don't say. So I fully expect you to vote for him, Horace. Uh, you know I don't like being told what to do, Julius. Ah, you wouldn't say that if you heard him. Oh, it was a stem winder for the ages. Oh, well then. What was this stemwinder about? Taking the country back from the Malay factors of wealth. Uh, what factors are those? The gold standard. And what the hell is the gold standard? What the hell? It's money, Horace. Uh, not to me. To me, money is good old American greenbacks. I'm not talking about greenbacks, Horace. Those malefactors of wealth use gold instead of silver. Gold is for the malevolent... Uh, the malfeasance of gold is for all those rich folks what are putting us down. That's malefactorin, and Brian will stop it. Uh, talking down about rich folks is just fine, but that doesn't tell me how this Jennings fella is going to help me get more in my pay envelope. Oh, yeah, ignoramus. It, it's because of those malefactors. They, they have all the money, and they're keeping it for themselves. And Mr. Brian is going to get more for us. That's right. By winding stems and making speeches? If he needs to. Mr. Brian, his speech was about more than just gold. 
uh, is, is about all them, them rich city folks taking things away from people like us. City folks. Yeah, you're home to the Mali factors as well. We live in a city, you buffoon. Yeah, not a city. Cities, big cities. Chicago's probably the second biggest city in the country. I don't know. He don't hate us, and he don't hate cities. You just said he did. No, no, William Jennings Bryan just hates rich folk what lives in cities taking gold away from us. Yeah, anyone who says they hate where I live will never get a vote from me. Ah, you're too obstinate for politics. Uh, look, Julius, unless you can tell me one decent thing this fella said that'll make me believe he'll help me, I'm uh, just heading back down to the furnace with the last of these streamers. Yeah, you shall and... not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Uh, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. That's what Mr. Bryan said? That's what brought the house down. Sounds kind of anti-church, if you ask me. <laughs> what? Well, crowns of thorns and crosses of gold seems uh, anti-religion, if you ask me, Judas. Um, um, oh, sorry, Julius. Now, you are just twisting the magnificent words of that man. Words are words, Julius. You tell me this was a stirring speech, and I can see people on this convention floor seem to believe that. But if all you tell me about the speech are fancy words and hating cities and mocking our Lord and Savior, Jesus... Horace shame Basile. If you can't see the genius and the passion of William Jennings, Brian, that, and that he is clearly fighting to help you make your life better, why, I don't know what I can do to convince you that you're wrong. Oh, you can start by not calling but me Mr. Imbecile. But Mr. Brian, Horace, is an orator whose words are full of power. Uh, sounds to me like your orator is more about looking down at people who go to church downtown. <laughs> Whoa, are you going to vote for Mr. McKinley, Horace? I don't know, Julius, but if people like you are calling me dumb because I don't think like you, I don't see why I should change my mind, even if McKinley were running against Jesus Christ himself. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go empty out the garbage cans on the concourse. You're impossible to reason with, Horace. Oh, maybe, Julius, but I'm not going to be impressed by a cross of gold just because you are. Unless you actually gave me a cross of gold. Hell, I'd even vote for a malaf actor if you gave me a cross of gold. What's interesting about Brian, he kind of came out of nowhere. He went bounding up the steps at the, uh, to the podium at the Democratic Convention in 1896 in Chicago, probably breaking a couple of steps on the way. And delivered this almost literal barn burner of a speech. Mm -hmm. And from then on, the legend was launched. He was well ahead of McKinley in most polls until about October of that year. Well, and he, he managed to well, he managed to unify the uh, the Democratic, the old Democratic Party, and the populace who had been gaining in strength uh, in the you know in the West. Uh, so much so that he was like the nominee for both tickets. Like he was the populist nominee for president and the Democrats, Democrats nominee for president. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to say, it is so indicative of William McKinley, I think, is in that we have been recording for 20 minutes and have yet to actually start to speak of William McKinley himself, which. <laughs> um, Born we, in Ohio. Yes, as Paul mentioned, yet another Ohioan. He served in Congress, served as governor, 
And again, Ohio was a rather big deal because there were a lot of Wheeler dealers in that state, both politically and economically. He, he was the last president to be a Civil War veteran. He was, but he started as an enlisted man. I think I, that's one of the things that really intrigues me about his later kind of like non-stance on labor and also his like kind of non-addressing of civil rights is like, but you started very low. Certainly you can relate. Okay, do you know how he rose to the rank of major, how he distinguished himself? I know he was a commissary sergeant at one point. Exactly. Ah. He loaded up he loaded up a wagon with bacon and beans and went charging onto the battlefield during the battle of it was either Antietam or Bull Run to feed hungry Union soldiers. Was he farting all along the way like in blazing saddles? Also, of course, that's that, how the wagon went so fast. I thought this was going to sound, I thought this was going to be a lot worse of a story. He doesn't sound like a bad guy. Well, but maybe it had something to do with the people that were behind him as he was gearing up to run for president. And that's where we get uh, Mr. Hanna. Who's Hanna? I'm setting it up for someone. He was like basically the republican party in ohio like of course again in cleveland that was a headquarters of uh rockefeller and standard oil one of um, the outposts of carnegie in the, in the steel trust and of course matt would famously go on to to uh create scooby-doo and yes. uh Jabberjaw as well as a number John of other it would eventually Actually, be... there is a hannah theater in cleveland ohio is it named for the Hannah of, of course. Uh, William Hannah and Joe Barbera fame. John, not the Barbera. <laughs> I think those are made up people. Mm-hmm. Can we just say Mark right now to save ourselves the uh, fact check that his name was Mark Hannah, not William was, Hannah. Mark, was, Mark Hannah. That's, that's I was, was going to say. I don't think it's John Barbera. That was it's, the it's first Joe name. Barbera. I, is it actually Joe Barbera? Joe Barbera. Yeah. Mark Hannah was basically Hannah. the Charles and David Coke of that era. But you'll hear more about that when we do my right. Scooby-Doo episode later on. <laughs> <laughs> the corporate power behind who bought the throne. Right. Mm-hmm. Went for you meddling voters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun. Yeah, they, they pulled the mask off. It's Mark Hannah. It's him every time, though. Like, instead yeah. of <laughs> it, it's him. He's wearing a mask of himself. I w- and I will do it since I, it's the only person facing me is William Jennings Bryan. Uh. <laughs> it's also Old man Bryan. <laughs> Welcome, titans of faith, finance, and industry. I am Congressman Mark Hanna from Ohio the heartland of American manufacturing might. On behalf of my state's Republican trust, I am proud to provide you distinguished gentlemen with an exclusive preview of our latest product. Fresh from a Buckeye candidate factory, it's our next president, William McKinley Jr. Good day, gentlemen. He looks just as boring as all the previous Ohio Republican presidents. But I uh, hope you've eliminated the flaws of the previous models. For example, is he sturdier than Garfield? <laughs> Practically bulletproof, Mr. Gourmand. Is he more industrious than Hayes? Reconstructed specifically for hard work, Mr. Ledwater. And was he as 
in need of constant lubrication as grants. One glass of sherry on Sunday after church, and he's good to go for an entire week, Reverend Wasperton. Believe me, good sirs, all the minor defects in the McKinley model can be adjusted away with a mere tightening of his nuts. Ah, well, he must be a man of faith, welcoming to all Christians. Uh, May I hear some of his inaugural address? I assume the ardor and duties of presidents, relying upon the support of my countrymen and invoking the guidance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hmm, that's that's a tad papist, isn't it? Oh, um, all right. Uh, I'll set his Methodist dial to maximum. I assume the ardor and duties of president, relying upon the support of my countrymen and invoking the guidance of Almighty God. Hmm, not, not perfect, but less blasphemous at least. He's not some stealth socialist who blames bankers like me for the most recent panic, is he? <laughs> Why, of course not, Mr. Grimond. Just listen. Our financial system needs oversight. With federal guidance, our money's value can be maintained. Oversight? Federal guidance? What next, a mob of peasants hanging financiers from the trees along Wall Street? Uh, heavens no, up here. I'll reduce the heat on his rhetoric. Our financial system needs some revision. Our money is all good now, but its value must not further be threatened. All right. My head might remain attached to my body. I trust he won't be agitating the lazy, good-for-nothing unionists with pie-in-the-sky talk of fair wages and an eight-hour workday. Of course, Mr. Ledwater. Feast your ears. The depression of the past four years has devastated America's workers. We must secure their rights. Who is this? Emma Goldman in a tweed suit? There'll be so many strikers, my Pinkertons will run out of bullets. Never fear. We'll eliminate any unionist sentiment by adjusting his spine, which is as supple as a chocolate eclair. The depression of the past four years has fallen with especial severity upon the great body of toilers of the country. The revival of manufacturing will be a relief. Mm, That's a little less wobbly. Still, I have my doubts. He's light on personality, even for an Ohio Republican. Indeed, he comes off as a bit mechanical. Ah, but you gentlemen haven't seen the piece de resistance, which will make the McKinley irresistible to voters and invincible in the face of his enemies. May I present Ida, the invalid wife. William, I'm cold. How will this pale, sickly creature help him get elected? She looks like she wouldn't stand up in a strong breeze, let alone host a levy. That's what makes her our secret weapon. Watch. Good lord, she's shaking like a, well, like a shaker. William, I'm having one of my fits. Pardon me, gentlemen. I must interrupt these tariff talks to fulfill my Christian duty by tending to my sickly wife. Aww. So, 
Do we have a deal? Okay, going to throw out yet another bombshell here. You know, everyone can detonate it or, you know, disarm it, whichever they prefer to do. Mm -hmm. The election of 1896 seems to be the debut of big corporate money in American politics. Brian, for all of his gigantic flaws, scared the bejesus out of the money man. And so there was an organized effort to raise millions upon millions of dollars from people like Morgan and Rockefeller for McKinley. There were companies that placed orders, you know, for big manufactured, uh, for big, you know, manufacturing jobs, you know, giant orders of locks, giant orders of, you know, steel, you know, steel rails. It's a only, we will only, only fulfill this order if McKinley wins. If Brian wins, all bets are off. Yeah, I think it, it is really the first time that we see the, you know, the business arm of America flexing its political muscles in such an overt way. Certainly covertly, right? They had been active behind the scenes and, you know, all kinds of, you know, dirty dealing and corruption. But I think one of the things that is that there is a sense that Brian was uncorruptible, that that he was a true believer and that he was really going to do what he said he was going to do. And so, you know, if you couldn't corrupt him and you couldn't directly corrupt the voters, well, then you better actually campaign against this guy, you know, above the table uh, so that people know just how dangerous he is, quote unquote. So I think that whereas business interests had certainly been politically involved, a lot of that had been in smoke filled rooms and behind the scenes. This is business coming out to the American people and saying, don't vote for this guy. He's going to mess things up. You know, OK, so how did how did McKinley pull this out? You know, he's going after this guy who clearly has an, a message. He's got a base. He's got people energized. And then McKinley just kind of front porches his way to a victory. How did that happen? Well, you have to understand kind of like what the electorate looks like. Right. So it's it's not it's not a representative slice of the country. And in many ways, it never really has been. Right. So the people who vote in elections, one, they have to be citizens of the United States. So if all these factory workers who are immigrants, they're not voting. They don't they don't have that privilege. And I don't even know if the country had the secret ballot at this point. So to some extent, your vote may be public knowledge in Wait, at whoa, least whoa, many. Whoa, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. So secret ballots the, were a, a fairly modern really thing because you didn't want to just, oh, if you wanted to vote and not anonymously, what kind of, you know, skulking, low-belly mm -hmm. coward are you? A real man even attempts, going to proclaim who he was right, Even attempts for. to institute a secret ballot were kind of passive aggressive because you had to request the ballot of a certain party and they were printed in different colors. Well, but if you if you did a secret ballot, then how could you prove someone didn't pay you just to uh, vote for whoever they told you to pay to vote for? Oh, we were wrong. I'll admit I was wrong. Secret ballot um, laws started in 1884 and Kentucky was the last one to adopt them in 1891. Of course. They just come in. Just come in. I'll just scrap that couple minutes of conversation. <laughs> yeah. If you want to talk about front porching your way to victory, 
McKinley had a lot of proxies. In fact, we can indirectly uh, credit him with the birth of AstroTurf, at least in terms of political campaign. On Halloween of eighteen ninety six, there was a rally in you know Lower New York, marching from the Battery to Fortieth Street, of like millionaires and journalists and just general money men singing the battle hymn of the Republic in support of McKinley because this, these were, these were Sandy used to be a member of the billionaires for Bush. These were the millionaires for McKinley. This was a phony grassroots organization telling America that it was doomed if Brian was elected president. I'm and sure none so, of them uh, actually served during the Civil say. War. But Some so did, but not all. But so indicative, right? That they use this, they use this song, this piece of like cultural hearkening back to the Civil War, right? As a way to say, like, ah, let's unite around McKinley. Because remember what happened the last time that we didn't agree with each other? Yeah, they said John Brown's still, body too. And actually, Tommy's still reeling over the whole concept of front porching. Yeah, oh, the verb. It's so good. The verb is just kind of the verb is a little harsh. Is well, I, I, well this, done. Now we've put it we've put it into the world. I do like though uh, that the they were very serious about the front porch specifically. Uh, apparently, a number of uh, railroads subsidized trips to his home in Canton to go see him. To the point that a pro-silver newspaper in Cleveland said that going to see McKinley was made cheaper than staying home. But then, if the <laughs> apparently people also uh, stole pieces of his porch as souvenirs. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> if they stuck in front of the porch, does that then make it a station and no longer a porch? Uh, I mean, if the rail, if like he built a railroad to his front door, then perhaps. I think they just took him to the the town. Uh, I think that becomes a whistle stop at that point, right? Well, Canton, oh, in reverse. Canton is a steel town, so there's there's a fairly substantial town there. See, that'd be a real efficient way of like shaking hands. Is just like stand right by the end of the right by the railroad, just hold your hand out, and just kind of have like a train comes by, train come by, and you just like yeah. slap every hand. Oh, you go. High five. Oh, will lose high five. You will lose a lot of babies that way. Though. <laughs> <laughs> May I see the lady or the man of the house? What the hell do I look like to you? Well, if I may introduce myself, sir or madam, I am Mr. Harper Edgefield. And if I may make an observation, it appears that this is a comfortable abode you are living in. It's a one-room shack with seven people in it. If I may further reply, I am a salesman. I could tell that by your pomade and life of lice. And I have a proposition that will make the beauty and utility of your home even more beautiful and useful. You sell outhouses? Oh, I have something that may be even better than that. You sell husbands that want to do more than make kids? I am a proud representative of the Bucyrus Porch Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, the official porch company of the President of the United States of America. Porches. Porches, porticos, gazebos, patios, verandas, sunrooms, and piazzas. I'd rather have an outhouse. If I may, madam, you are clearly a discerning consumer, so let me explain the virtues and advantages of adding an outside living space to your humble homestead. <laughs> Don't 
try to shove your sister's head in the coal stove, goddammit! I have, in my hand, a gallery of some of our many selections of an outdoor space, as endorsed by the White House itself. Looky here. Oh, the railing's smooth and safe and made of top-quality lumber from the Forest City area of the Buckeye State. Uh-huh. The steps up to the main area, rising gently as your front door appears. Didn't you see the step right in front of me under the mud? The stoop, a perfect place for a view of your land. Ain't my land. It's the land of Mr. Johnson, and he lets us use it as long as we pick his corn and my husband turns it into moonshine. Such industriousness. It is good moonshine. Are you impressed by these patriotic American designs? Why should I be? This is Mr. Johnson's land. You should talk to him if he wants to add something as stupid as a porch. But <laughs> Mr. Johnson uh, gave me permission to speak to you and gives you the choice to add to this lovely homestead. Oh, Mr. Johnson's been nipping at the moonshine this morning. <laughs> How many times I gotta tell you the baby ate dog food? <clears throat> uh, Mr. Johnson understands the power of a porch. Why, the good folks at the Bucyrus Porch Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, have helped put no less than four favorite sons of the Buckeye State into the White House itself. By building porches? Oh, indeed. Porch sitting is the preferred method of presidential campaigning. But the wrong porch can spell doom and defeat for the party whose porch does not measure up to the glorious specifications of porches and presidents that the Bucyrus Porch Company of Bucyrus, Ohio has set and can pass on to you. How in the hell do porches make presidents? If I may say, I do not comment on the politics. But I can, and do vouch strongly and proudly for the comfortable outdoor space that our company can provide, either to allow your lively group of children time to leave your home space for housekeeping, or for you and your husband to stay outdoors and not indoors to watch the family you've already made grow as well as they can. Indeed. And no further. You're tempting me. Oh, well, perhaps this will finalize your doubts. This porch swing will allow people to sway with the wind as the day concludes, watching the sun rise and the creatures... Squirrel! Whiff! <laughs> you can clean it right this time so we don't pick any fur out at dinner tonight. Y'all here? Yes, yes mother. mother. When can you start? If I may say, ma'am, uh, you will not regret the purchase. God bless America. Now, look, we're let, let's look, folks. We got to talk Our about play idol. sooner or later, anyway. So let's do it, and let's start with a compliment. He married a woman that was of legal age, and also was not part of his family, which for the last couple presidents was not true. So let's tip our hat to him about that. Um, and uh, uh, speaking of bar, she, she was. A very frail woman. I don't know. I mean, she had epileptic seizures. I mean, she lost her mother and two of her children within like the space of a few years. And she was never well again. And that was actually one thing that people admired about McKinley. He was very dedicated to Ida. He didn't like keep her in a darkened room. He sometimes would put a handkerchief over her face at dinner. So, you know. And so she wouldn't go off, but uh, I think he was a pretty good husband. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, she wouldn't go off like a gun or like a racist <laughs> uncle? She, well, Somewhere in I don't the middle. think she had, she had stress-induced seizures. I see. Wow. That does explain why he was so 
dreadfully boring as a person. Being nice to your wife makes you boring, Patrick? No, you're just trying to keep from exciting her. <laughs> yeah. By hard living and fast, <laughs> loose. A real even keel. Mm-hmm. No, uh, no big wheel of cheese parties with him. No, no. Well, what's going on in country that McKinley may or may not be doing that he is getting credit for that by the time we get to 1900 sets him up for re-election besides the fact that the, that for some bizarre reason William Jennings Bryan returns as an opponent? The, well, the economy of- improved. It did. That's it? Um, you were talking about deflation, James. A lot of it's like what happens with you know cell phones and computers in the early twenty first, mid nineteenth, excuse me, late twentieth, early twenty first century. Those nineteenth century computers were notoriously slow. Um, luxury items, what were once luxury items, become affordable to the average schmuck. So if there was not actual prosperity, you had the appearance of prosperity from the growth of consumerism. Which the appearance of prosperity is better than real prosperity every time. That's what I always say. <laughs> I think you also... Give oh. me that gooky bag. Yellow journalism. We got to talk about the other three named William here, Randolph Hearst. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized, like, it's tons of them. Three amigos. Attack of the three named Williams. <laughs> I mean, what's McKinley's middle name? Should we add him into the bunch? Mick. Kinley's actually his last name. That, I would no. respect him so much more if he was walking around with a middle name Mick. <laughs> Just MC Mick. MC Kinley. Why is there not a rapper by that name? Oh. <laughs> I can think of a couple of good reasons. <laughs> but I actually want to ask this. I feel like it's kind of like pop culture knowledge that Hearst is responsible in large part for the war. How true is that? Or how much in, is made up by Citizen Kane? I, I certainly think that there's to some extent that public pressure to, to take action um, was certainly helped by Hearst. I think a couple other factors that were also important were one, the fact that the the official board of inquiry blamed Spain for the, for the thing. Like that was their conclusion as inaccurate as it may have been. And that Spain was just kind of a jerk about the whole thing and that they weren't particularly responsive to American diplomatic overtures. I, I think ultimately, and perhaps interestingly, McKinley was a little bit reluctant to jump into this. He was not the leading the charge on war. And even, I'm I'm trying to remember, like he had kind of a, his war message to Congress was like, you could, it's really up to you. Tell me what you want me to do. And if you vote for war, I'll I'll go do it. I'm looking at a quote from his inaugural address, which is the Mm -hmm. following two sentences. We want no wars of conquest. We must avoid the temptation of territorial aggression. How'd that work out by the end of term one? <laughs> a second term. I, I guess. He was publishing, well, you know, Wells stole the line, you supply the pictures, I'll supply the war, which has been attributed to Hearst, but never proven. So he just stirred up American passions over the plight of those poor people in Cuba being herded up herded and rounded up and sent to concentration camps. So yeah. how much, what, you know, 
What did we you use? Do you think Ars really had that kind of power? I, well, okay. So one, the Spanish were very brutal in Cuba. Like that, that is, that is a, a, an acknowledged fact. I think what you have with the, with the yellow presses though, is much the same media environment that we have today, which is that you have basically competing monopoly, you know, a, an oligopoly, a small number of media conglomerates that basically own most of the newspapers in the country. They're dependent on subscriptions and advertising revenue to make their money. And so how do you get readers? You give them what they want to read. And so if you do that, people will buy your newspaper. If you have, and you know, it turns out that people don't want to read. Turns out everything's okay today. Check page five for the weather. You know, people want outrage. People want excitement. People want stuff that stirs the emotions and oftentimes stirs the emotions in negative ways. And so I think a lot of what we have in, in today's media environment, where you basically have partisan camps or at least, a you know, one partisan camp existing and, and kind of adjacent to or in some cases quite distant from the realm of actuality that exists because that's what their readers demand. <laughs> Right. It's it's again, it's an economic question. If readers demand to be told things that aren't true, they will be told things that aren't true in a market economy. Rosebud. Rosebud? That your pet name for your mistress's private parts, Hurst? No, you vulgarian. I'm christening this canoe, this aquatic sled, this fragile lady of a skiff we've Shanghai to make this journey into fear, carrying an explosive. Ah, you're cuckoo. You're the third man to tell me that today, Pulitzer. I hope you aren't expecting a prize. As Assistant Secretary of the Navy, I say Rosebud is the perfect name for Stingy of Destiny. The fireball from this mine will be the first flowering of the American Empire, and you, Dewey, will be our Admiral Nelson. I need a fleet first, Roosevelt. That's why I'm helping you jokers blow up the main. Maybe once we frame Spain, your boss McKinley will spring for a few more ships. Plus, that barge is in dry dock half the time. If we didn't blast this bucket to smithereens tonight, no one would remember the main. Remember the Maine. Magnificent. I'll panic America with that headline in the New York Journal tomorrow. <laughs> That's panty waste. The New York world will print the yellow kid waving a U.S. flag and will sell a million more papers. Enough, you Philistines. With this single act of sabotage, we're forcing Mr. McGinley to at last declare the war which America so desperately needs. And here you are seeking to profiteer from it. Blast these civilians, eh, Dewey? Gosh, Roosevelt, I didn't know the Delta Kappa Epsilon chapter at Harvard was a branch of the military. Uh, not an official one, no, but uh, still it was full of bully fellows. <laughs> there she is on the horizon, lads. The main. Careful putting that mine in the water now. We will detonate no mine before it's time. Fellow citizens, time to raise Cain. Can someone at least say they're a little sorry for the sailors we're probably depositing in Davy Jones' locker? Huzzah for the first martyrs of America's rise to greatness! Nothing can stop us now, gentlemen! 
Molly. Except maybe a mermaid jumping into the boat. <laughs> do these look like fins to you, pal? <laughs> oh, by gum, that's no mermaid. That's Emma Goldman, America's most beautiful and dangerous anarchist. Beautiful and dangerous. <laughs> what a magnificent ampersand. Uh, that dame is packing heat, Hurst. A touch of evil can make my mercury rise a little, Pulitzer. Tell me, my dear, how did you find us? Your mistress has a big mouth, Willie. Not that she needs it. So I just followed you, robber barons, to Havana. Turn this bucket around or I blow us all the kingdom come. I won't let America's working men die in your imperialist war. If you talk to these workers instead of about them, Emma, you'd know they're spoiling for this Donnybrook. That's just because sleaze merchants like Hearst and Pulitzer here tell them what to think. You make me sound so ruthless. Why this compulsion? Now, Miss Goldman, if you impede this mission, you will have dealt a death blow to America's chance to become a great world power to rival the ancient regimes of Europe. Not very mm -hmm. bully at all. Now you're crackling, Rusey. Start rowing this rig back to Havana in three, you plutocratic parasites, or they'll need a luxury suite in hell for all yes. Three, two... Good golly, keepers! Someone beat us to it! Nah, the crew probably left the coal scuttles too close to the engine. Most Navy recruits nowadays couldn't keep a raft floating on a river. But that's about to change. Well, it seems your schemes were foiled, my dear. Oh, like hell. Once we get back to dry land, I'm blabbing this whole story to every paper that you and Pulitzer don't own. Ooh, you mean the Nation, the Chicago Tribune, and Women's Wear Daily? Still... President McKinley will have to spring every labor agitator from prison just to make room for you schmucks. You think anyone is going to believe your story, Emma? It's the stuff of fake newspaper headlines. Yeah. Stage melodrama. Comic strips. Get comedy. I... Well, back to the lecture circuit. You know, the journal could use a new sob sister. A Stop it, Hurst. <laughs> I bet your granddaughter turns out to be an even bigger radical than I am. <laughs> what a ridiculous thought. Havana! Oh! Cyclically, there's the Panic of 1893. That sucked. Well, now it's over. Things are going better. It's a business cycle. There would be another panic a couple years later. It wasn't as severe. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, again, it, it's, it's to some extent musical chairs. McKinley, you know, uh, well, Harrison happened to be there when the, or no, Cleveland. Cleveland was there when, you know, the music stopped in terms of the economy and, and didn't get a, a seat to sit in. And McKinley, things were going good when he was there. And so he gets to, gets to keep rolling. So, yeah, I think that the fact that that improved and the fact that, uh, you know, the Spanish-American War was a nice little bonus there. So I think that there was, among many people, not all, all certainly, but among 
you know, the people who composed the electorate, a sense that the country was on the quote unquote right track going into 1900 and that we just took it. And then basically the Democrats nominate Brian. I don't know. I I don't see who's going to say, well, I voted for McKinley in 96, but I think I'm going to vote Brian this time. (laughs) Right. Like who is that swing voter? There weren't many of them. And you look at the electoral map and it's almost a carbon copy. 96 to 1900. Very few states changed hands. And so it's the same result. McKinley for four more years away. It looked like it looks like his first few months of his second term was literally one gigantic victory lap, like went west, traveled, crowds everywhere, goes to Buffalo, which is essentially the World's Fair of the time, the exposition. A long time in Canton, relaxing with the regular folks. As you do. As one does. And which is perfect for a porch. And unfortunately, he runs into Robert Todd Lincoln. <laughs> and everything And everything goes awry. Pronounce it. Leon Sholgosh. Sholgosh. Very good. Leon Sholgosh. Thanks, yeah. Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> he's, no, he's no John Wilkes Booth. I mean, In terms of his fame. True. If you had to... Hit all of the assassinators, assassins, assassins. 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 Got it. against each other. I think John Wilkes Booth would win. He would definitely win best hair. Yeah. Uh, well, you I think... know, I'm, I'm going to throw it behind um, uh, Kennedy's killer. I think he's yeah, got Harvey a... Oswald. Yeah, Lee Harvey. Yeah, Harvey. If, if you just had him do a straight fight, Leon Sholgosh might win, just because he seems scrappier than Lee Oswald's, uh... a, Oswald's a Marine. Yeah, mm-hmm. would be my argument. Okay, yeah, that's fair. But, Lee, but Oswald got his ass kicked just before he was arrested. See, but Sholgosh was a yeah. scrappy, uh, uh, scrappy anarchist. But when mm-hmm. Sholgosh, right after he shot McKinley, he was almost pummeled to death by the crowd. Oh, they wait, thought... we're we're forgetting the toughest one, the one who killed William Henry Harrison, the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> who will be no, the one who killed God Taylor, himself, the Cherry? Oh yeah, wind and cherry, I think, yeah. are are the way to go on this. <laughs> put money on, put money on the cherry. Now, Does Chelsea, you when we did this show live in 2017, you told us your favorite story about William McKinley, and it has to do with his assassination. So the best part about William McKinley's assassination is um, right; they can't find the bullet, uh, and right around the corner. From where he is shot, they are exhibiting a new machine called the X-ray. And no one thinks to use it. The end. Oh, but I think... That... Well, I mean, they the metal the detector people? they used on Garfield worked so badly. <laughs> the X-ray machine was too crude to penetrate McKinley's considerable girth. That's the account which I read. No, they didn't even try it. Yeah, exactly, because... They... <laughs> It's like they weren't going to see anything. Now, my favorite, my favorite part of the assassination, and everyone can share theirs, was that <laughs> there was one, apparently one good surgeon in Buffalo who was away removing a tumor from someone's neck around Niagara Falls. And when they said, you, you know, Dr. As one does. Name was Pike. As one does. Uh, hey, doctor, you got to come right away back to Buffalo. I'm in the middle of surgery. I don't care if the president is dying. Sir, the president is dying. So they had to find a gynecologist, Dr. Oh. Mann, to operate 
on Dr. William McKinley. Dr. Mann, the gynecologist. Mm-hmm. Was was irony invented at this point in time? Like, was that available? on that very day? I think at that moment, yeah. Mm. Doctor Man, OBGYN. Do you think that there were any Secret Service Dr. agents who like pulled each other aside and they're like, "I know the moment's serious, but I just came up with a very funny joke." <laughs> Doctor Man, Lady Doctor. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, so my other that. favorite. So my other favorite assassination story is um, when he gets word that. McKinley has been assassinated. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt goes camping to the Adirondacks. <laughs> yeah. He's like, maybe did. if I'm not around, they can't make me president. <laughs> Just want to say that I think McKinley, I know we kind of rushed through him, but I think he's a really important president in that he is this bridge literally between the 19th and the 20th century right and i think like like james is saying sets a a new tone for both a more in involved and strong government in the united domestically in the united states but also sets the tone for a strong interventionist government abroad Mm -hmm. um which really you see so one of the debates that historians like to have is like, when does the American century begin? And you'll hear so many historians argue, ah, the American century begins in World War One. And no way. Well, and I, I will say when I was the World War One centennial intern, I, I bought it. I was like, yeah, I understand your argument. And increasingly, as I step back, like, it's hard to justify that argument right because mckinley is is kind of the president that says not even kind of he is the president that says america now has a role to take place in the world and it has a seat at the table of the great powers america became a world power overnight quite literally when admiral dewey destroyed the I mean, it's not hyperbole. He really did destroy the Spanish fleet yes. at Manila uh, in 1898. Yeah. And then, of course, we started an occupation of the Philippines that was America's first major land war where we committed horrifying atrocities against the native population. Mm-hmm. But we somehow managed to miss that. Yeah. Although I would almost argue that the real American century kind of starts in 1945 because we're not just at the table. We're pretty much the only people at the table at that point. Right. And so one of the things that I love doing in this podcast is is bringing like actual not that we're not having these like good historical debates here, but like these are questions that historians like this is our bread and butter. Right. When does the American century begin? And I think you could even argue as early as 1865 after the, because think about the United States in 1865, the Union Army is the largest standing army in the world at that point. So if you're just talking about like, who's got the guns, who's got the cannons, it's the United States. Even as early as that, the United States would be near the largest economy in the world. Certainly by 1880, it is. McKinley's the person who kind of, and perhaps reluctantly, but does decide that yeah. the U.S. will take an involved role in foreign affairs, that we're not just going to kind of say, all right, Europe, have your fun in Africa and Asia. Nope, the U.S. is going to be involved yep. and has never, ever stopped. 
Tommy, you've been trying to say something? Well, I was thinking about this because I'm like, we're obviously we're qualifying this by wars. It's the only way America has ever qualified anything, seemingly. I mean, money as well, but Mm -hmm. there's... We uh, just have so many of them so regularly. It's a convenient (laughs) stopping point. I think, Joe, it's interesting that you point out that like, oh, 1945, but I would like, I would argue that's the peak because maybe we, maybe we run the table then. But we win almost no wars after that point. Well, we're still a superpower, though. Well, hey, Sandy, any- when did the American century begin? <laughs> <laughs> I will defer to our Americanist, and I think I would go with Chelsea. I mean, so this is the time of American domination. There's a difference between domination and being a superpower. And I think by by World War II, the definition of the superpowers kind of changed. Yes, yeah. England and Spain were superpowers as far as imperialism and colonialism in their time. But as far as like being the the two people who control the the planet, that is kind of a it's a different level than what the American century than what we were before. So True Patrick, history. when did the American century begin? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> trying to think of a funny answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pass. You got a nomination, Sylvia? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, when motion pictures were invented and we started exporting our American way of life out Ooh. to the uh, outside yeah. world. So the mid 10s I yeah. like that. Well, uh, and when Edison started this whole film phenomenon, we started making films and saying this is the American life, and everybody knows so much about the U.S., but we don't know as much about the rest of the globe. Right. I like that. And I will say one of the things that is really powerful about World War One as the starting point of the American century is World War One um, newsreels made in america and featuring american soldiers are very popular by movie tone news a branch of fox any final words uh about uh william mckinley looking around they i think historically they call he's kind of a meh president not one of the best not one of the worst I, i guess to wrap up mckinley i would say one he sets the Republican Party on its kind of terminal course for what they're going to become. Roosevelt almost is an outlier because Roosevelt goes off and does all these other things. And then subsequent Republican presidents are like, "Mm, nah, Teddy, we're not going to do that. But basically, McKinley's kind of non hands off approach to, to civil rights kind of stops Republican Party, uh, ends it as a serious force for trying to, you know, protect the rights of formerly enslaved Americans, that basically they'll stop doing that. And we will enter, well, I think what's been described as the nadir of American race relations after slavery in the first two decades of the 20th century. And corporate America is now fully Republican. Like if there had been any question about it before, I think they certainly lean that way. But now, they're behind the Republican Party. The Republican Party is the party of business interests. Well then, thanks, William McKinley. (laughs) DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joay, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. 
This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedarko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedarko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org. Donations are tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque, and join us on the Trident Network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to like.